Thanks, guys. All right, uh, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, that's where we're going to be at this morning. And when we ended our study through chapter 45 last week, we were told that we read about how the sons of Israel, uh, uh, Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, had departed from Egypt with a command from Joseph after Joseph had revealed himself to him to be their brother whom they'd sold into slavery and that the fact that he was still alive. He said, go back to the land of Canaan and tell our father that I'm alive. And that he had been raised up, that Joseph had been risen up, of course, by the hand of God into this place of power and authority. And because there were still five years of this famine that was left that had spread across all the land, the Bible says multiple times that it was a severe famine, um, that, that Joseph also instructed his brothers to bring their father and all their households back to Egypt so that they could be provided for while living, it says, in the land of Goshen, a part of, the, of Egypt that was given to um, uh, uh, Jacob and his family. And, and even though Pharaoh, think about this, so Joseph spoke it, but we also know that Pharaoh had given his permission for this. And not only did Pharaoh give permission for this, he provided Joseph's brothers with these carts and with provisions for that journey. So, man, all the doors were open. They had gone from this place where they were, were, were barely surviving, where they didn't have food to eat, to where they realized that their brother was still alive. And now endless doors were being opened for their provision and for their protection. And in spite of all this, we know that their hearts were heavy. That Joseph's brothers' hearts were heavy because, because they were going home with this news that Joseph was alive. And, and, and we would think, well, that would be a wonderful thing, but you've got to remember the story. This meant that with that news, it meant that their sin that they had committed against Joseph and the lies that they had told their father about Joseph having been killed by uh, a wild beast, that all of these things were going to be revealed to their father. So as they set out for their journey back to the land of Canaan, we know, we read, we talked about how Joseph encouraged them. And he said, see to it that you do not become troubled along the way. And then we talked about how that was a, a word that God speaks to us today. And we don't become troubled along the way when our own heart condemns us or, 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 or when we sin and we fall short, short of, of, of God's standard. That we can just come to God and He's there with arms opened up, encouraging us, loving us, and forgiving us. And, and Joseph was encouraging his brothers with these words to see to it that you do not become troubled along the way. But even though Joseph had spoke these words of comfort, I suspect that each one of these brothers... Each one of them along the way was anxious about what was going to happen, even fearful probably to stand before their father and told them what they had done. Nevertheless, this is what they did. And we are told that when they, when they spoke to their father and told him that Joseph was alive and that he was the governor of all of the land of Egypt, it says that his heart stood still. It stood still because he did not believe them. He didn't believe them. And it doesn't say why. And, and, and I don't want to read too much in it, but maybe it was too, too much for him to believe that his brothers had had a hand in, 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 in what had happened. So he did not believe them. He couldn't believe it. Um, but the thing that I want to point out here is, is that what, is, is what, J, is what, Joka, is what, is what um, Israel spoke, what Jacob spoke, in, in light of this. And, and, and what we see is that um, what we see is that 
Jacob was unwilling to condemn his sons. That's, that's just really the simple way of saying it. Because when he saw the carts and when he saw the provision that had been sent back to carry him to Egypt and all of his families, this is what he said. He said, it's enough. It's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive and I will go to see him before I die. Now the importance, I thought about this a lot, because the importance of what someone says is often amplified by the things that they do not say. Right? The things, the importance of what someone says is often amplified by what someone does not say. In other words, Jacob's response to this news that Joseph was still alive after being lied to for 22 years, it's not what we might expect. It's certainly not what I would expect. Meaning he didn't speak any words of anger when he realized that he'd been lied to. In fact, we don't, we're not told anywhere where he even questioned them, where he condemned them, or even punished them for what they had done. Rather, he said, it's simply enough that my son is still alive. And in light of this, we see by this one simple statement, this one small phrase, that Jacob in that moment made a decision to forgive. And rather than look back to what had been done and hold on to the past which was, was filled with hurt, which was filled with grief, Jacob chose to look forward. He chose to look to the future and not let what had happened ruin the good things that God had set before him. And this is such an important thing for us all to take notice of because Jacob's example reminds us that in letting go, guys, of the past hurts, in letting go of, 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 of past disappointments, that we too are choosing to move forward or towards the good things that God sets before us. Furthermore, if we hold on to the past, and if we hold on <laughs> to those hurtful things, those disappointments, the letdowns, the failures, if we, if we hold on to those things, you know, we're probably going to miss out in some way, in some fashion, on the fullness of the good that God has set before us. But in order to let go, which can be really hard to do at times, in order to let go of the past and move ahead, we, like Jacob, have to believe and trust that whatever God has set before us is more than enough. Is what God has set before you enough? Is it more than enough to move ahead? Is it enough to even get us through what's coming even if it's full of uncertainties. And I think it was for Jacob. And I think that's why he was able to say in that moment, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of the letdown, to say, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see my son before I die. And clearly, Israel was willing to do this. And in chapter 46, if you guys will look there with me, we're told so. And it says in verse 1, it says, So Israel, Jacob took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to God, the God of his father and Isaac. And then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation. I always love that whenever you read in here something where God speaks, like he says, do not be afraid to go down. He spoke that because Jacob was afraid. 
God was addressing a heart issue, something that was going on inside of Jacob. And God loved him enough to come to him. And so we understand that and we see that there was this fear. And God spoke to him. And so in speaking to him, God also said in verse 4, He says, I'll go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And then Jacob says in verse 5, He arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And so, it says the livestock, they took their livestock and the goods, verse 6, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt. Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Let's pray. Father, as we see, God, your faithfulness to Jacob, um, to restore to him things that he thought had been lost, Lord, I can reflect on my own life and think about the things that you've done to be faithful to restore to me the things that I believed were lost as a result of my sin, as a result of my own failure. And God, we all have those things, but Lord, we know you're greater, we're greater, you're greater than our, than our loss, than our failure. They are able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ever hope for and imagine. So Lord, help us today as we read these accounts and see what you did in the lives of Jacob and for the nation of Israel, for your chosen people, God. As we see that, Lord, may we see your faithfulness to us. God, may we trust you when we're faced with uncertain things. May we hear your voice and cry out like Jacob in response saying, Here I am, Lord, whatever you have, whatever you want. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it's safe to say that all of us understand that life is full of unexpected changes. Right? Is there anybody here that's never gone through an unexpected change? No. I mean, sometimes it happens daily, and, 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 and it seems like when an unexpected change comes, it usually, sometimes it comes in like bunches, threes and fours, and you know, you're just kind of gripping for the next thing that you're not expecting. And for the most part, we don't like these unexpected changes when they come. Most of the time, they're not a pleasant surprise. But when an unexpected change comes, you know, we're, we're, we're typically filled with, with worry and anxiety. And the reason why is because that unexpected change takes away the familiarity or the routine of life that we've become accustomed to. I may even say that we have worked so hard to reach that place of comfort. In fact, I thought about it a little bit, and even in an expected change which can be planned for such as a vacation a new job or a move even those expected changes that can be planned for can be overwhelming can they not they can be they can be overwhelming and the truth is the older i get the less i like change the more i like the routine of my life for example last year we had the awesome opportunity of being able to go to spain visit our foreign exchange daughter and her family and we had a wonderful time with them, and a wonderful time exploring a foreign country. However, the familiarity and routine of my daily life, it was a joy to come back to, to be able to sleep in my own bed. Certain things that were just taken for granted um, 
were revealed to be such a, a, a wonderful thing, simple things. And even though we were having a great time, I remember that there came a time in the vacation when I was really looking forward to being out of that change that I had chosen to be in and to return back home and back to the life that I was familiar with. Now, like my vacation, some of the changes that we encounter are chosen, right? While others are out of our control and even forced upon us. And I can't think of anything worse than than the loss of a loved one, an unexpected change. Yet all change brings with it this. All change, expected or unexpected, brings with it a sense of the unknown, which can bring an excitement and also bring fear all at the same time. And for Jacob, there was an excitement. There was an excitement for him clearly when he found out that his son Joseph was alive. And that he now would be going to see him. However, the journey to Egypt to see Joseph, for Jacob it meant leaving behind the land that his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had been called to. The, father, the land, the place that they, had been, that they had dwelt in in order to go and live in the land of Goshen, a, fear, a, 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 a foreign land, a land they were unfamiliar with, a land full of people they did not know. And for Jacob, this was a fearful change. But Jacob's life had been defined by changes. We've been studying about him for weeks now. And if anything really defines him is that his life is marked by changes, by moving from place to place. And Jacob had learned many important lessons through these life changes, as shall we. Lessons about God, right? God made himself known to him in the midst of the changes. Lessons about himself. And lessons about other people, especially his sons. And some of those lessons had been very difficult to learn. And we know that Jacob, who had literally wrestled with God in the midst of these changes, hadn't always learned the lesson the easy way or the first time around. And I I know some of you, and that's the way we are as well. But the changes that God allowed Jacob to go through were used by God to grow him into the man that God had created him to be. And God does the same for us. And in the same way, God will allow for change to come into our lives in order to break up the familiarity and the routine of our lives, in order to take us out of these places of comfort and to teach us lessons about God so that we might know Him more, trust in Him more, rely upon Him more, and cling to Him for everything. But not only lessons about God, but lessons about ourselves. God will use those hard things, those unfamiliar things, to reveal to us what we are like, what we are in need of, but also lessons about other people. A little later on in this chapter, we're going to read that, 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 that um, Jacob was 130 years old at this time. 130 years old. And he would live for another 17 years in the land of Goshen. And thanks to God's goodness and Joseph's faithfulness, Jacob was heading towards Egypt where he would now be reunited with Jacob, but also be blessed by God tremendously during these remaining 17 years of his life. And yet, as Jacob left Hebron, it's clear that he was afraid to leave Canaan and go down to Egypt. Nevertheless, what we see in the midst of this fear is, is, is a really cool thing, is that Jacob exercised courage, moving in spite of the fears that he had. And he and his family, his son's sons, and his, his son's daughter's daughters, and they all came, it says, to Beersheba. 
And when you look on a map and you study this out, what you'll know is, is that Beersheba is the most southern town in the land of Canaan. You, Canaan. you can't go any further in Canaan beyond Beersheba without leaving the land of Canaan. And Beersheba was as far as Jacob could go with actu- with, without, without actually leaving the land. This is the key, the land that God had called him to dwell in. And you know what? Jacob had learned at this point because of a lesson that he had gone through, because of a change that he had gone through, that he had learned um, at a time when he, if you remember, when he chose to live in a city called Shechem rather than in a city called Bethel, he learned through that situation, through those circumstances, that it was not good to live in a place that God had not said to live. But it's clear from what we read here in verse 1 that no matter how much he desired to see Joseph, that he was not about to leave the land of Canaan without seeking God first. So when he reached Beersheba, as far as he could go before leaving the place that God had called him to live, he did this. He sought God. He worshipped God. He offered sacrifices to Him. But... Understand that Jacob didn't just choose to stop in Beersheba because it was the southernmost town in the land of Canaan. It wasn't the only reason. Beersheba was a special place. It was a special place to Jacob. It was a special place to his grandfather Abraham. And it was a special place to his father Isaac. Abraham had dug a well there when he first entered the land of Canaan after coming back from Egypt. And he lived there for many years after being called by God, remember, to leave his homeland. Beersheba, in relationship to Isaac, was the place that Isaac had lived all of his life with his wife, Rebekah. And it was where Jacob was born. This was his hometown, his home place. It was the place where he was raised. But more importantly, this is the place where God had appeared to him and his forefathers. God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to Isaac. And now it would be the place that he would appear to Jacob. He would appear to Jacob in order to calm his fears and to reassure him that it was his will. It's okay to go into Egypt. And Jacob stopping off here in Beersheba to seek God's will in the midst of this, of this time of change or in, this, in, the, in the midst of this current change is an example to this. And by this we should see how we should also be seeking God's will and asking for his help and for His blessing when we're challenged with a change in our own lives. Or when we're about to enter into a new phase of our life. Here's the reason why. Because the only thing that's going to take away that fear, that anxiety that comes with the uncertainty of the change that we might face are the assurances of God. The assurance that God is for us. But not only that, the assurance that God is with us. In other words, wherever you're going, God's saying, whatever you're going through, He's saying, I'm with you. That kind of assurance is what drives out or casts out those fears. You know, and David wrote about this in Psalm 55, verse 22, when he simply said this. He said, cast your burdens upon the Lord and He shall sustain you. So when change comes, or when we're faced with a crossroad of life that will take us into a new phase of life, there are good reasons for us to be sure, as we see here with Jacob, that we know that the direction that we're going on is the direction that God would have us go. 
And even though Joseph had instructed Jacob, think about it, to come down to Egypt, and even though Jacob's heart longed to see his son, and even though, not only that, it appeared to be the wise thing to do in light of the famine, Jacob was still concerned about leaving Canaan. And perhaps it was because he had remembered his great-grandfather, Abraham, because he too had also gone down to Egypt in a time of famine, yet in doing so, he got himself in trouble. Matter of fact, he almost lost his wife. Remember that story? And he came home, not only did he, he not lose his wife when God delivered that, but he came home with a Hagar. When he had gone down to Egypt, and that Hagar, this handmaiden, ended up being a stumbling block to his faith. Furthermore, his own father, Isaac, in a time of famine, had also set off to go down to Egypt, going in a way that seemed right to him. But he only turned back after God appeared to him and said, don't go. Remain in the land. I will take care of you. And the point is, guys, just because our heart's longing for something, like Jacob's heart was longing to see his son, just because our heart's longing for something, or just because something appears to be right, meaning Hey, there's, there's, there's provision for us down there in Egypt. Just because something appears to be right doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do or it's God's will. And the only way that we can know that is if we spend the time seeking that out. And this is why we must rely upon God to direct our path <coughs> even though God's leading may and often does go past our own understanding of things. Isn't this what Proverbs chapter 3 tells us? Verses 5 and 6, when it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your path. It's that simple. And that's what Jacob was doing here. And that's what we could we need to apply to our own lives. And see, Jacob knew that he couldn't rely upon his own understanding of the things. He certainly couldn't just be following after his heart. His heart's like our heart. Our heart's deceitfully wicked. And if our heart's leading us somewhere, the odds are, the chances are, that it's going to be a place that's outside of God's will. You've heard me say this before. I always laugh at people who say, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to follow my heart. Okay? Let me know how that works out for you. Not good. Now, God does give us the desires of our heart, and He puts those desires in there when we're in His will, when we're seeking Him, But if it's truly a desire that God's put in our heart, that He's given to us, He's going to make it come to pass in His own time. We don't follow the desires of our heart. We follow God who gives us the desires of our heart. And it was Jacob's desire to see his son. And he said, I'm following you, God, and if this is your will, then it'll be done. And it was on the basis... It's really cool. It's on the basis of God's promises ultimately to go with him. And the promises once again reaffirmed to make a great nation of him him and his family there in Egypt that Jacob left Canaan and moved to Egypt. Not of his heart, not of his own understanding, but because God said, go ahead, Jacob, I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you. And so in verse 8, we read again, and it says, Now these were the names of the children of Israel, those who went down to Egypt with Jacob and his sons who went into Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. So we have this genealogical record, and it says the sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. 
The sons of Levi were Gezeron, Kohath, and Merai. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan, if you remember, died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez and Hezron were Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tula, Puvah, Job, and Shimron. And the sons of Zebulon were Sarid, Elan, and Jahalil. And these were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. And the persons, his sons, and his daughters were 33. That's significant. The sons of Gad were Zephron, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Uri, Aradoi, and Arilai. And the sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Ishuai, Bariah, and um, Sirah, their sister. And the sons of Bari were Heber and um, Machiel. These were the sons of um, Zilpha, or Zilpa, whom, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Then the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph in the land of Egypt were, were born in Manasseh and Ephraim, and um, whom Asernath, the daughter of Potphoriah, priest of On, bore to him. Sons of Benjamin were Bela. Uh, Bishur, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosha, Mupapim, and Hupapim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons in all. And the sons of Dan were Hushim. And the sons of Naphtali were Jahaziel, Gunai, um, Jezer, and Shaliam. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, 17 persons in all. And all the persons who went down or went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All of the persons of the house of Jacob who went down to Egypt were 70. Now, it may seem a little redundant. We know there's a lot of genealogies recorded in the Old Testament, and, and these names can be really hard to pronounce, and I know I didn't get them all right, but this is a really important part of Scripture. This is a really significant thing, and it's put in this place after God wet, met with Jacob for a very intentional reason, and, and it's because this. It's because of this. It's because God wants us to know that He keeps His promises. He's a promise keeper. He's faithful to do what he said he is going to do. And this genealogical record, which accounts specifically the number of people who went to Egypt with, Jack, with Jacob, is documented so that we might later see the fulfillment of this promise that, Jake, that God had made to Jacob when he said, go down, there with, go down to Egypt, I will go with you, and I will make you a mighty nation, a great people. Because what we know is, is that this promise was one that had first been given to Abraham when God called him out of the land of the Chaldeans. And then it was handed down and reaffirmed to Isaac, and it also had been done in, in, in the same manner to Jacob previous to this point where Jacob said, had said, you know what, if you, be my, if you do these things for me, you'll be my God. And, and it was stated over and over again as God made these promises to Jacob. And in doing so, God said that through him, through him he would make a great nation. 
And this is exactly what God did. And he did it in Egypt. He did it in the land of Goshen. So Jacob and his family numbered 70 when they went into Egypt. Yet we told and we read that when the descendants of Israel were brought out of Egypt 430 years later by God through the hand of a man by the name of Moses that they were a mighty people. They were a great nation. And according to Exodus chapter 12, they numbered 630,000 men. And these were men who, these, these who were numbered were only those who were of fighting age. And matter of fact, the Bible says specifically that this did not include the women and the children and those men who were not of fighting age. And we're never given that number, but conservative estimates based upon the number of fighting men suggest that the nation at that time, when God brought them out, when God went with them out, as He promised, that there was around 2.5 million Hebrew people. God keeps His promises. And God wants us to know that He keeps His promises. And just like God had made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to His people that He's spoken to them and brought them to pass in in, in perfect faithfulness, in, in fulfillment to the times when God said that He would, He has done the same thing and does the same thing for us. He keeps His promises. So as we read on, verse 28, it says, Then He said to Judah before... It says, then he, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point, point out before him the way to Goshen. Real quick, the, the, and I'm going to tie it all together, but just so you know, the, the name Goshen means to draw near. Okay? That's significant. But it says that he, he sent Judah before him to point out the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. And so Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept a good. He, he, he wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, "Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive." And Joseph said to his brother and to his father's household, "I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men." Are shepherds for their occupation and have been to feed and has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our father, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every Shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the last verses here and then jump back into the to get back to chapter or verse 28. But in verses 31 through 34, we're told this what something that might seem really unusual. There's a little odd bit of information um, that we've been given here at this this at the end of this chapter and this this information about um, their occupation and 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 what. Joseph was going to tell Pharaoh about what they did and, and, um, and that one if they were to be questioned by Pharaoh or that, that this is what they were to respond and say, hey, that, that we're shepherds, we're herdsmen, we care for the livestock. And then the, the explanation for, for that is, is so that um, they would be seen as an abomination to the Egyptians. And, and truly, that's, that was the case. Historically, we know 
that the Egyptian people looked upon those who were shepherd to care for livestock as the, as the untouchables. And, and you would think, well, if you're going into the land, wouldn't you want to be accepted? Wouldn't you want to be brought in? Wouldn't you want to be looked upon in a, in a, in a, a way that wasn't deemed as um, an untouchable or an abomination? But what we see here is, is, is that through this and by this, that God was setting things up for his people to remain sacredly separate and wholly kept unto him. And that's exactly what God did during this time. They would go into another nation to live as God would grow them up to be a great people, but yet they never assimilated to become part of the Egyptian, Egyptian people or the Egyptian culture. And that's a really cool thing. It's an amazing thing, but it's a picture for us of exactly what God does for us, of what He's called us to. Anytime you look to the Old Testament and you see Egypt, Egypt is always a picture of the world. And what God do to grow His people... The same thing that God does to grow His church. He puts His church into the world so that the world might know Him. And the same thing was true with the Hebrew people in relationship to Egypt. Ultimately, at the end, when, when, when God was delivering the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt, that He brought Moses and to bring all these plagues upon the land. And it wasn't just to punish the Egyptian people. It wasn't just to punish Pharaoh, but God says over and over again, so that Pharaoh and the people might know me. And the Hebrew people were to be a light. They were to be a witness, but at the same time, they were to be sacredly separate to the Lord. And it's a cool picture for us of how we've called as a church to be in the world, but not of the world, to be seen as abomination to the world. But in the same sense as one of our guys was talking about in our Bible study, in the same way that sometimes we can be the aroma of death to people, that when God's working in us and through us and saving, that we're the aroma of life to people because of the word that we know, because of the gospel message. And the only way that we can be that aroma of life to people is is if we are living as followers of Jesus Christ, sacredly separate and holy unto Him. Not becoming a part of this world. Yes, we're in it, but we're not a part of it. And such was the case with the Hebrew people. And God set this up from the very beginning. And Joseph had the wisdom and the insight probably given to him by God that as they lived in the land of Goshen, as they raised their flocks, that this would be known. And it's a way for us to say too, listen, we are followers of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is whom we serve. And however that lands in the lives of people around us is how it lands and let God do the rest. Be in the world and not of the world. And the Hebrew people were called to the land of Goshen. And the land of Goshen was located in the northernmost part of the Nile Delta. And when you study out um, uh, the geography of that and and maps, it, it comes to about an area of about 900 square miles. And more than once we're told that Goshen was a fertile land that was ideal for the herds and the flocks that Jacob's sons, and he and uh, Jacob, he and his sons had brought and that they would raise there in, in the land of Egypt. And it was in Goshen, we read, where Joseph and his father were finally reunited together after 22 years of separation. And in their, their reunion was an emotional one, lots of tears, embracing. But the thing that I want us to notice as we close this morning and begin to wrap it up, I want you to look at verse 28. Because in verse 28, we're told, remember now, there's this genealogical record that I've read, and it kind of breaks up for us the account a little bit. But if you were to look at that parenthesis of the genealogical record and pull it out, and, and you in 
um, and you end where God is speaking to, to Jacob, and, 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 and God's telling Jacob to go ahead and go, we see in verse 28 that this is the response, this is Jacob's response to God saying, go ahead and go. Verse 28 is. And, and it's Jacob's response to this, specifically to having been assured. Jacob's response to having been comforted and directed by God to go to Egypt, and his response was to send Judah. To send Judah before him, in order, it says, to point the way, to lead the way into the land of Goshen. I mean, I think this is notable. I think this is notable because when we remember that Judah's name means praise, it becomes notable. Because of this, we see a spiritual example for us. We see a spiritual example of how to move forward when change occurs or when we are facing an unexpected thing. In other words, when we're facing a change, when we're facing an unexpected thing, the thing that we should send before us into that situation is praise. Praise needs to be what is sent out first because praise is a powerful spiritual resource for us that changes things. Yeah, prayer changes things, but praise is a form of prayer. And praise changes things. And it's the praise of God, which is a form of worship that gets our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, off of our situations, specifically off of our weaknesses, off of our problems, and off of the fears and the worries that we're facing, and onto God who loves us, and onto God who, guys, is, He's a mountain of faithfulness who holds us firm no matter what the uncertain things are that we are facing. Praise. And the point is, is that the praise of God, it is what paves the way for joy. The praise of God, that rejoicing, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, is, is what paves the way for this surpassing peace to fill us in spite of the doubts and the fears that we might be facing in the midst of the changes that are coming. And this is because our praise reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of what our God can do. And in doing so, our thoughts, our minds are then shifted off of our problems and off of our deficiencies and onto our God who is greater than every difficult thing that we might face. In other words, praise draws us near to God. King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, many Psalms of praise, he knew this. And I want to kind of wrap it up by reading Psalm 145 to you. You can turn there if you want. He said this. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another and they will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. He has made 
and all you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will exalt you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that men may know of your mighty acts and of your glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures for all generations. The Lord is faithful to all of His promises and loving towards all that He has made. The Lord upholds all of those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in their proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of His ways and loving towards all that He has made. The Lord is near to all who call on Him and to all who call on Him in truth. He fills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears the cry and saves Him. The Lord watches over all who love Him. But the wicked He will destroy. And My mouth will speak praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. Justin, if you want to come up, I'm going to end with this. The bottom line is, guys, praise beats back our discouragement. And so often we do it in our own strength, in our own mind, and we go into this battle, into this warfare, going, we've got to beat back these fears. We've got to push back these discouragements. But the tool, of the, the gift that God's given us is this ability to praise Him, to focus up upon Him, to remember and meditate upon His goodness. And it drives back, it beats back our, those discouragements. And you know what it does? It fills our hearts like it did for Jacob with the hope and the assurance that God is great. And that with God, something great is going to happen. Guys, something great's going to happen. Give God all the praise. Give Him all the glory. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, send forth the praise of God. Lord, we thank You, Lord. We love You. We worship You. God, You are worthy of our praise. And as we worship You with this last song, may it come from a heart of gratitude, Lord, that reflects upon Your goodness and what You've done for us and what You will do for us. Father, we love You and we worship You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.